Good evening, everyone. Great to see you all again. Uh, it's always, always good to uh, see everyone here and kind of get to know everyone and, and see the people coming in to hear God's word week after week. Um, just it's a joy for me, and I hope it's a joy for you guys as well. Uh, so for those of you that have been here, you probably know that we are starting a new book of the Bible tonight, which is always exciting. Um, so we, uh, we finished up Joshua this past week, and so we're jumping right ahead into Judges. And um, Judges is an interesting book of the Bible. Uh, I know in my, my preparation, my study going forward to this, um, reading through it, just reminding myself of kind of the, the flow of the book, the different things that come up, the topics that are addressed. In many ways, the book of Judges, I think, is the darkest book in the Bible. Uh, that we're going to see some things as we study through this that don't seem like things that we would expect to be recorded in the scriptures. Um, that we're going to see the evil that mankind is capable of brought up in graphic detail. Um, that as we read some of these, these passages, uh, it's going to remind us in some ways of, of some of the terrible news articles we see. You know, when you, you get the newspaper, or you get online, and you see a headline, and you don't even want to read the rest of the story. That you see the headline about, you know, some horrible thing, some action that a person has taken against another person that just gives you chills, that uh, reminds us of how wicked people can be, how fallen the world is, and the pain that comes with that brokenness. And we're going to see some of those kind of stories in the book of Judges. But we're also going to see hope in the midst of that. We're going to see God's sovereignty in the midst of that. And we're going to see God's ability to use fallen, sinful people to accomplish his goals, to bring about good, and to bring himself glory. And so really, even though Judges is dark in many ways. It's in many ways also a book of hope. It reminds us of the power and the faithfulness of God in the midst of a people who are unfaithful, who have forgotten who their God is and what their God has done for them. Uh, so a little context on the book of Judges. Um, so Judges falls right after, historically, the period of Joshua. Um, so the first little bit we're going to cover today actually kind of almost steps back and rewinds kind of um, to when Joshua was still alive and gives a little bit of the context of what's going on in that time period. Uh, so Judges is kind of the bridge that takes us from Israel's conquest of Canaan, of the Promised Land, to the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, where they had kings, you know, eventually leading to the Davidic line of kings from David and his descendants that would reign over the people of Israel. And so Judges kind of connects those two things and fills us in on what happens in between. Uh, Judges picks up right where Joshua left off, that the land has been mostly conquered, uh, that God has been good to his promises to the people of Israel to give them a land to dwell in, to give them an area where they can settle and be blessed and seek and glorify him. But they're not quite finished with that job. Uh, we see God promise to give Israel the land bit by bit, piece by piece, as they grew and expanded, as their, uh, the number of people started to grow and um, as they needed more territory. 
and that he would help give that to them bit by bit. And so at the end of Joshua, the nation of Israel has strategic control over the majority of Canaan, that they have most of these key cities, they have control over the passes through the mountains, and uh, these different areas, um, that they have strategic control over the area, but there's still some pockets where there's still Canaanites dwelling, some areas where they need to expand their territory and their rule into and continue to drive out these other peoples and to take complete control of these remaining areas. And so Judges, what we're going to read tonight, talks about what happens when Israel goes from that mostly control of the area and what they do moving forward if they take complete control of that or not. Um, There's a few different things we see along with that. So the book of Judges gets its title from these leaders that we see throughout the book, that it's going to focus on a couple of these key individuals that led the people of Israel during this time. So at the end of Joshua, Joshua has... um, passed on leadership, as it were, that he has commissioned the people of Israel to carry on the work, reminded them to be faithful to God, um, but unlike Moses, he did not commission a key leader for the people, a certain individual to take that role of leadership and to be the primary leader for the people of Israel. Uh, That at the close of Joshua, the people of Israel are left led by their different tribal groups and heads. Um, There are different chiefs that would be among the people. And so we see in the book of Judges, God raise up these tribal leaders or chieftains to help lead the people of Israel in faithfulness, to deliver them from the hands of their enemies, and to help restore right worship of God. And this is a big part of what's going on in this book. Uh, So when we hear that title, Judges, it's not so much um, somebody working in the legal or judicial system, that it's a leader over the people that God has established. Uh, We also see Israel struggle in a continual battle against idolatry. This is something that's so common in the Old Testament that we see that constant temptation for them to worship the gods of the people around them, to worship the gods of the people around them that they were surrounded by. Um, And that was a lot of the reason that God had commanded them to drive out the Canaanites, so that they would not be tempted to follow that same lifestyle of sin that the Canaanites engaged in. And uh, the, the Canaanites, as it was before this all happened, engaged in some pretty terrible, horrendous acts as part of their regular lifestyle and as part of their worship. Um, We'll see Israel be drawn to worship Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, the god who brought rain to the earth. Uh, We see also a reference to Ashtaroth, which is his female counterpart. Uh, Part of the worship of the Canaanites was engaging in prostitution, in animal sacrifice, and at times in child sacrifice. There were some horrible, horrible things that the Canaanites were doing on a regular basis, and this is why God had warned the people of Israel so strongly against allowing them to dwell in their midst and to draw them into their sinful practices and their sinful worship. The book of Judges reminds us as well of Israel's need for a king, 
for a leader. That at this time, Israel was supposed to be living in the promised land in joyful harmony with God himself as their leader. But they were unable to remain faithful to God in this time. I think the key verse to understanding the book of Judges, kind of if we were to to pick one that would give us a theme for the entire book, comes at the very end. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so that's what led to so much sin to people walking away from the God that had done so much for them and engaging in these horrible practices is because there was no king, there was no leader. They were not following God the way he had commanded them to. And instead, they were choosing to do what was right in their own eyes. And that's a great reminder for us today uh, that we're in a culture where morality, right and wrong, is more and more being seen as relative. This is something that each person can decide for themselves. What is true? And Judges cries out against that, reminding us that there is absolute truth, that God has established right and wrong. And straying from God's definitions of right and wrong and from his commands for his people only leads to pain and to suffering and to evil. We'll also see as we study through this book, uh, these judges, these leaders that God raises up, most of them are not particularly fantastic people. That God shows again and again his ability to use imperfect people to accomplish great things and to do great things for his kingdom and for his glory. That we'll see these judges rise up and do great things. They'll win great victories for the people of God. But we'll also see them fail in many ways, in their individual personal lives and in their leadership. Uh, That these people were far from perfect, but God still used them. Which reminds us of God's sovereignty. That the book of Judges teaches us so much about God's power to use any situation to ordain circumstances that seem beyond hope and beyond redemption. And to use them to bring about good. So that's another lesson we can get from this. And I think really the greatest message of hope we have in the book of Judges is God's commitment to rescuing his people. That the people of Israel will again and again stray away from the Lord who has done so much for them. That God will save them from the oppression and the suffering that they brought on themselves by their sins. And within a generation or two, they forget all of that. And again, go back to idolatry, to worshiping false gods and living in sin. And God continues over and over to send someone to rescue his people, to give them hope in a time of darkness and of suffering. And so that's where we get our theme for this book. The book of Judges shows us so much of God's plan to rescue the wandering hearts of his people, that The sin nature dwelling within the Israelites, the sin nature dwelling within us can draw us away from God, can lead us into temptation, into sin. But God has a plan, that God has a purpose, and that God has the ability to rescue his people, to bring them back to that right relationship with himself, to restore them to blessing and to joy. And so that's a lot of what we see here in the book of Judges.
So let's go ahead and get started and see what God has for us here in these first few chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, I mention this periodically from time to time, but I will be reading out of the ESV, uh, very similar to the, the NASB that most of you are used to, but a few different, different changes here and there. Uh, so Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And so we see a lot right here of just what God is doing through this conquest that the Israelites were undertaking. Uh, that a lot of this reminds us of what we read in Joshua the past several weeks. Uh, that the people of Israel were continuing to conquer the land, to defeat the enemies were there. And in verse 4, we're reminded that the Lord gave the Canaanites into their hands, that the victories Israel experienced were from the Lord, that it was only God who was able to do these great things, to give them these victories, to give them this land. And so when God is with them, they see these victories. Uh, follows on at the end of verse 4, that they defeated 10,000 of them in this battle. Uh, that This next step, of conquering the land after the death of Joshua is going pretty well for the people of Judah. Uh, we have this king here towards the end of this, Adonai Bezek, um, obviously a pretty prominent leader in this area. Um, and so they catch him, it says in verse 6, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Uh, from what I've read, Part of the idea with this was humiliation. Part of this was to keep him from ever being able to use weapons in battle again. Uh, they were handicapping him from ever being able to fight against them before. Uh, interestingly enough, we see in verse 7, he says that he had done the same thing to 70 kings before this had all happened to him. So he had conquered 70 different kings. He had done the same sort of of humiliating, disabling action against them. And so this man controlled probably a fairly large area, and God gave Israel victory over that as they were faithful to follow him. And his statement here is interesting. Now, Adonai Bezek says, As I have done, so God has repaid me. And we're reminded that Israel was bringing God's justice upon the Canaanites in many ways. Um, that God delayed the coming of Israel, uh, we're told early in the scriptures, until the iniquity of the people who lived there was complete. That God was waiting until this area had reached the point where they were so sinful, so wicked, that the only solution was to wipe them out, to drive them out of the land that they dwelled in. 
And so this is an example of that here, that this king suffered a similar fate to what he had done to so many others, uh, that he had realized that this is the punishment that he justly deserved because of what he had done. So Israel is continuing on in their conquest. They're defeating more of these enemies, conquering more of this land. And we see that continue in verse 8. It says, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So in these verses, uh, we see that continued conquest. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. It says in verse 9, Afterward, they went down to fight against the Canaanites in the hill country in the Negev, in the lowland. And we see God give them victory in these areas as well. Um, there's a few different people that stand out in these verses here. Um, we see Caleb. We remember Caleb as one of the original spies that God sent to scout out the promised land. Uh, that him and Joshua were the only two of the 12 spies who brought back a good report to the people, who encouraged the people to obey God, to go in, to take hold of his promises, and to take hold of the land that God was giving them. Unfortunately, the rest of the people did not listen, rebelled against God and against Moses, and so they waited, wandering 40 years in the wilderness for that rebellious generation to die off. So Caleb and Joshua were spared from that fate. They were given the right to take part in the conquest of the promised land. And we saw Caleb in the book of Joshua into his 80s still going out to fight against the people of Canaan, trusting in God, taking hold of those promises, and leading his people into victory. And so we see Caleb here asking for someone, calling for someone to go against this city, Kiriath Sefer, and capture it. And he says, whoever does this, he's going to give his daughter as a wife to this victor. And uh, we see another guy here, Othniel. He's going to show up next week as one of the first judges of the people of Israel. And uh, Othniel goes and defeats the city, receives Caleb's daughter as his wife. Um, apparently, as part of this arrangement, uh, Caleb also gave an allotment of land to them as they started their life together, but it was in the desert. And so Caleb's daughter goes and asks him to also give her some of the springs that were bordering that area, that they might be able to have water for their livestock or to be able to grow things, whatever it was they were going to be doing there. And so we're seeing, as we read through this, really these promises being fulfilled, things going the way God 
had commanded the Israelites to carry them out. That they're conquering more land, they're being faithful to God, they're seeing victory, uh, they're seeing life the way God intended for them to live it here in the promised land. And then there's a bit of a shift here coming up in these next few verses. So Judges 1, starting in verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day few different things in these verses here. Uh, so it starts off talking about the Kenites. Uh, so these are believed to be uh, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So you remember Moses uh, left the people of Israel, left Egypt, was working outside the land, pasturing flocks as a shepherd, and uh, he gets his wife there. And so his father-in-law, actually, we see traveling for some time with the people of Israel as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. And so apparently some of those people, Moses' in-laws, had decided to join themselves with the people of Israel. And so we see them here go with the tribe of Judah up from the city of Palms, it says in verse 16, which is Jericho, into the wilderness. And so they go and they settle amongst the people of Israel. Uh, we see Judah go in and capture more cities in this. They defeat the Canaanites in Zephath, Hormah. They capture Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron. And then in verse 19, it tells us that the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. And so we're reminded here again that the victories that the people of Israel experienced were from the Lord. That as they were faithful in following God and obeying him and seeking the fulfillment of the promises God had given them, that they would experience victory as given by God over their enemies. Uh, they do have a few setbacks there. It says at the end of verse 19 that they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And so there were some obstacles they faced there um, that some of these, these Canaanites they were fighting with were better armed with it than they were that had an advantage uh, with their horses and with their chariots in the open areas. Um, this advantage was negated up in the hill country where they wouldn't be able to use the chariots. But on the plains, there were some obstacles here. Um, not something that God could not overcome or give them victory over, but at least at that point, they were not able to defeat them in that area. We also see in verse 20, it says uh, that they drove out the three sons of Anak. Uh, so if we step back a little bit, back to Numbers, we're reminded that the sons of Anak 
were the giants that the people of Israel were afraid of, that they were not able to go into the land because they were worried about the fortified cities, about the large people that dwell there, about these large people, these men of great stature that they had to fight against. And so that was one of the reasons that people of Israel had rebelled against Moses generations before. And we see God give them victory over these same people almost as an afterthought. That This is not nearly as big of a problem as they expect it to be when God is with them and when they are walking in obedience to God. Verse 21 tells us that the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, So if we step back just a few verses, in verse 8, I'm sorry, um, in verse, if I can remember it here, uh, anyway, earlier in the chapter, um, the people of Judah had conquered part of Jerusalem, it says. But then here we're told that the Benjamites were not able to drive out the Jebusites who lived in the rest of Jerusalem. And uh, so these are not conflicting accounts here. Um, that Jerusalem, as it was in that time period, uh, was kind of separated into two different parts. And so the people of Judah were able to capture one portion of it, but Benjamin was not able to do so. And it says that The Jebusites lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And uh, we actually see David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 go in and conquer the remaining portion of Jerusalem. And that's when he begins to live there, makes that the capital, and rules from Jerusalem as king. And so because of the failure of the people of Benjamin, to capture the rest of it, to defeat the Jebusites, uh, they had to wait quite some time for David to go in and conquer the remainder of the city. And so we see in these sections a little bit of victory the people of Israel have, but also some setbacks and some defeats uh, that we see when God is walking with them, when they're obeying, we see God give them victory, but we also see some issues they had when they fail to capture these different areas, to drive out their inhabitants, and end up living among them. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a few moments. Verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Lowe's. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Katron or the inhabitants of Nahalo. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. 
Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Axib or of Helba or Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harry's, in Ijalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor, and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. And so this last section here we just read shows us when things really started to fall apart. Uh, the people of Israel were conquering the land. They were defeating the Canaanites. They had great victories, but they had a few setbacks along the way. And then when we get to this point, we see just this list of all these different cities, these different villages surrounding the cities, these different people groups that they did not defeat, they did not conquer, that they did not push out of the promised land, that they failed to follow the commands God had given them in this, uh, that they fell short of doing the work that God had commissioned them to do in order to take hold of the promised land, to have complete control of it, and to live as a righteous, holy people set apart for the Lord. You'll notice in each of these situations, it talks about how they did not drive out the people who lived there. And then in verse 29, it says, the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, right at the end, the Canaanites lived among them. Verse 31, the Canaanites, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, for they did not drive them out. So we see the people of Israel going into these areas but not completely conquering them. Uh, that for whatever reason, they did not defeat these people. They did not drive them out. They did not follow God's command to do so. And the reason God had given them these commands was in order to keep the people of Israel set apart and holy to him. Uh, that the people of Canaan, again, were living horrible lives, devoted to destruction, to sin, to idolatry. And God did not want Israel to be contaminated by that. And that's why they had to remain separate from these people groups, why they had to completely defeat them and drive them out of the land. And failing to do so, they ended up living in the midst of these people, being surrounded by their idolatrous worship, by the sin that went along with that, and by the lifestyle that came with these lives that were dedicated to completely the opposite of what God had called the nation of Israel to do. So they failed to complete the conquest. They end up living among the Canaanites in many parts of the area. And this would lead to problems for the people of Israel. And I think there's a lesson there for us too, that we have to be careful when we're surrounded by sin, that we're called to live in the world, that we are going to be dealing with sin and with people who do not know or follow our God. 
But we have to be careful when we're in a situation where we can become comfortable with sin, where we can become desensitized to sin and not see sin for what it is. And we'll see the problems that causes here for the people of Israel. Judges 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boshim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Boshim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harries, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So the people of Israel are dwelling amongst the Canaanites. They've failed to drive them out, to completely conquer the land. And the angel of the Lord comes and brings a message to them. God reminds them, in verse 1, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And then in verse 2, he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And so God is asking these people, why have you not followed the commands I've given you? Why have you not fulfilled these commands and taken hold of the promises that I have given you? And so as punishment for this, in verse 3, God tells them that I will not drive them out before you, the people who live there. They shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So God is saying, because the people of Israel did not continue this work, that they were not faithful in doing the work God had given them, that they would not be able to drive out these people. Uh, that because they failed to do this, that God would leave some of these people here, it says, to be a snare and a thorn in their sides. That they were really experiencing the punishment that they had chosen in many ways. That they had failed to do this, and so God said, all right, I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your choices and of your actions here. Uh, that you are going to have to deal with these people for some time. We see after that that Joshua dies. Um, it says in verse 10 that after the death of Joshua, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so there's a couple different failures here. That as we had studied the previous books of the Bible leading up to the conquest of the promised land, that God had reminded the nation of Israel repeatedly 
that they had to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. They couldn't allow themselves to live among them and become corrupted by them. But God also reminded the people of Israel that they had to stay true to him and teach the next generation to know and follow him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Continues after that to say, These words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so for this to happen, for another generation to come who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done meant that Israel had failed to obey this command, that they had failed to love God with all their heart and to pass that on to the next generation, to speak of him constantly, to teach his ways to their children and to remind them of the work that he had done. And we're reminded of how important it is to teach that next generation of the work that God had done, of what God has done in our lives, of what God has done for his people, that it's so important for us to be passing that on, whether it be to our children or to our grandchildren or even to just the next generation in general, uh, that we have so many great opportunities to do that, to put that into practice, to help raise up that next generation. Um, And if you guys are looking for a practical way to do this, we have Vacation Bible School coming up soon. We're always looking for Sunday school teachers. You know, this is something very important to our work in order to help young people come to know God, to walk in his ways, and to be faithful as they go to adulthood and become the leaders of the future. Verse 11 And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So the situation here is not great. That we see the people of Israel fail to conquer the rest of the land, fail to take control of these areas, fail to drive out the Canaanites that lived among them, we see a generation come up who did not know God or the work that he had done, that they had failed to conquer the land completely, they had failed to teach their children who the Lord was, and we see the result of that in these verses here. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. It says that they provoked the Lord to anger. And it's so important for us today that we not forget what God has done for us. That a lot of Israel's problems here arose 
out of complacency and forgetfulness, that they did not continue the hard work that God had given them, that they did not continue to move forward becoming the people God wanted them to be, living in the places God had commanded them to live, doing what God wanted them to do. And they had failed to teach that next generation. And the result of that was idolatry, that these people walked away from the God who had done so much for them, that they began to worship the false gods of the people around them and to serve them instead of their God. That forgetting what God has done leads to complacency and leads to idolatry. And it's so easy for us today to forget what God has done. Um, That we see over and over again, especially as we've read through the last several books. Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, this is exactly what God had warned the people of Israel about. That when you get to the promised land, when you're settled, when you have peace, when you have victory, when you have rest, don't forget the God who got you there. Don't forget what he has done for you. That uh, This is something that the people of Israel would face over and over again, this temptation to forget what God had done for them. And so we'll see in these coming weeks the solution God presents for that. Um, the, the remainder of this chapter really ties in with chapter 3, so we'll cover it next week there. Um, but as we go from here, we have to think about what it is that God has done in our lives, what it is that God has called us to, and how we can be faithful to that calling. That we have seen God do so much. We have seen God redeem us from our sins, give us life and hope and blessing. And we have to remember to do that hard work, to keep moving forward in the areas of life that God has placed us, to continue seeking God and his glory in our places of work, in our schools, in our families, that we have to hold fast to God, to continually seek him, and to remember what he's done so that we can live in right worship of God and trust him with our lives and with all that we do. So let's remember what God has done and let's strive to be faithful to him in a world that is doing the very opposite. Let's take hold of the hope that he has won for us and live lives that are changed and transformed by that hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for your love and your power, God. I thank you for the message of hope we see in the book of Judges, God. That in the midst of failure, that we have hope, Lord. Uh, That in the midst of failure, we know that you can still bring victory. I pray that you would help us to hold fast to that hope, Lord. That we would seek that hope. That we would live in that hope. And that that would give us the ability to continue walking forward, whatever it is we may face. I pray that you would be with us as we go from here, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.